You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. Today, we are continuing our teaching series, Exiles, looking at the Babylonian exile, this period of history for uh, the people of Israel. And the question of the day is, how do you influence Babylon? How do you actually make a difference? I mean, we've been talking about exile, and the goal is not just to survive the exile, but what it means to thrive in exile is you actually move the needle a little bit. You influence the culture. And that's what Jesus calls us to do as the church, right? Would the city be different because we are here? Would our neighborhoods be different because we are here? And we've been looking at this chart the last two weeks and I want to show this chart to you again uh, because I think this is, this is very, very important framework for us to have in mind when it comes to uh, living out faithfulness to Jesus in a culture that increasingly is resistant and maybe at times hostile to our faith. Uh, there's two errors that we make. So many Christians, so many churches make one of these two errors. One is to err on the side of separation. That's to uh, not, not even you know, get to know your neighbor, not engage with the world. And the other side is syncretism. That's to blend in and to be overcome and discipled by the world. And each one of those errors has its own method for trying to influence Babylon. And so the method for someone who leans towards that error of separation could be described by the phrase, fight the power. Have you seen this? Maybe you've tried to influence the world like this. Maybe you've met people like this. I guarantee you've seen it on social media. This is someone who thinks that they're they're in exile, they go into Babylon. What's What's our best goal at changing the culture? Well, we need to overthrow the powers of Babylon. We need to regain political power. We need to be, if you want to have influence, you must be in a position of power. And so you might make political alliances, or this is the whole legislate your way to renewal and revival. And, uh, and if there was social media during the Babylonian exile, you might see slogans like hashtag make Jerusalem great again. <laughs> and it's really this idea that we need to have hard power if we want to actually change the culture, change the nation. And the reality is what worked in Jerusalem isn't gonna work in Babylon. The methods need to change. The context has changed. And, uh, and ultimately, often what ends up happening for someone who tries to fight the power and force the world, the culture of the world to change, is not only is it ineffective, but often they compromise their ability to witness. On the other side, someone who leans towards syncretism, uh, they would live by the phrase, not fight the power, they would live by the, the phrase, just fit in and be nice. Just be nice. And if we're nice enough people, eventually someone's got to notice how nice we are. And as it turns out, there's a lot of generally nice people in the world. And the church ends up 
inevitably blending in a little bit too much. And when the church becomes too much like the world, we no longer have anything to offer the world. And so we might study the scriptures, we might have the right answers, and we're all ready. If, you know, should that person one day ask us if we believe in God or why we believe in Jesus, we have the answer to a question that nobody has ever asked us. John Tyson in his book, uh, Creative Minority, just a small book on being uh, faithful to Jesus in exile. He says this, far too often, Christians spend time working on the answer for a question people are simply not asking because our lives look identical to those around us. It's not, so, so you see those two errors. And the, one is a really hard approach. Let's force the world to change shove Christianity down their throat if we have to. And one is a very soft approach, almost imperceptibly soft. And neither one of those approaches is working. And this is a very serious question the church in America needs to wrestle with. Because by and large, over the last couple decades, what we've been doing to try to influence the culture, guess what? It has not been working. It's ineffective at shining the light of Christ into culture. And so we're gonna look at Daniel chapter three and we're gonna learn a new way. Daniel chapter three is our teaching text for today. Let me go ahead and just read the first verse and catch us up on where we're at in the story. Daniel 3, one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's 90 feet, and its breadth six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, If you were here last week, we looked at the very first deportation was a small group of Hebrew uh, elites, essentially. Young men in the nobility, the best and the brightest, and they were kind of put through this cultural indoctrination program. We're not sure exactly how much time has passed from Daniel chapter one to Daniel chapter three, but at least some time has passed. Maybe a number of years have passed, and uh, Daniel and the three friends Uh, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, they are uh, all in positions now working in the local Babylonian government, okay? So they're all working in in government, and King Nebuchadnezzar has this idea to construct this 90-foot-tall statue. We're not sure what the statue is of. Likely, a statue that, that ginormous is probably something like an obelisk, Think of that, just like a giant, giant pole in the middle of the desert, okay? And this is certainly within uh, the realm of historical uh, reliability because Nebuchadnezzar, he's responsible for many of the great architectural constructions of ancient Babylon. Created this giant ziggurat, uh, the Ishtar Gate, there's a recreation of that in the Berlin Museum. You can Google it and it's just like this beautiful looking like ornate carvings of different creatures and glazed blue brick. And then the Babylonian hanging gardens, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that was done under Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So this is certainly within the realm of of plausibility, right? He's got a lot of resources and he says, you know what? I have this idea. I'm going to build a giant just called an image of gold. Now it's very possible that this image of gold was meant Uh, to be used for worship for Babylonian gods. It's another step in the cultural indoctrination program, right? Uh, Very likely the chief deity in Babylonian religion is Marduk, and so it could have been a statue dedicated uh, to him. 
or it's very possible that Nebuchadnezzar built this statue for himself. Babylonian kings viewed themselves really as deities in some ways. And in Daniel chapter two, I know we skipped Daniel chapter two. Daniel's a long book. We're not gonna go through the entire thing. But in Daniel chapter two, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and no one can interpret the, the dream except for Daniel. And he ends up not only interpreting the dream, but actually knowing what the dream is without having been told. And there's a statue, and the head is made out of a different material than the, the torso, and so on and so forth. And the head is gold, and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And so it's even possible that Nebuchadnezzar's like, I am the head of gold. I'm the golden king. And he decides, like, we don't know, this is, again, this is kind of putting pieces together, uh, but maybe he's like, you know what, I deserve, I deserve a 90-foot-tall statue. And whatever the reason, he sets up this statue, and he gathers all of the officials from, uh, who work in the courts from all of the different provinces. Strikingly, Daniel is absent from this story. Uh, this isn't to say that he you know, crept into syncretism and bowed down, you know, or anything like that. He's just likely working at another uh, part of the kingdom and was not summoned during this time. Uh, but the three friends are, and they will go by their uh, Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for the rest of chapter three. But it's those same three friends uh, that stood alongside Daniel in Daniel chapter one. And they ga he gathers them all out there in the middle of the desert, giant statue for the dedication of the statue. And here's the command, you ready? Daniel three, verse four. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, not optional. There's no, this is, you're commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, in case I missed any of the instruments, any, any time you hear music, here's what you have to do. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And by the way, if you don't do it, here's the consequence. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. This is what you call an ethical dilemma. Do you know what a dilemma is? A dilemma is when you have at least two options and none of them are good. None of them are preferable. It's what you call a lose-lose situation. And uh, we, we dealt with an ethical dilemma in Daniel chapter one, didn't we? Should I eat food that's gonna you know, cause me to compromise on the dietary restrictions found in Leviticus, right? And that is, you know, that's a dilemma, but this is taking this idea of the ethical dilemma in exile to a whole new level, okay? Now, and I'm not here to say that the dietary restriction thing is not a, a big deal, but there's, there's certain ways that you could, you know, if, like you're, if you're in their shoes, you can kind of justify it, right? or I'll just kind of pick around the meat. You know, I won't say anything, I just won't eat it. Like, there's certain ways that you could kind of, in your heart, explain it away. But here, this is in the Ten Commandments. This is serious. This is a huge deal. Exodus chapter 20, just to remind you of commandment number two in the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is uh, in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, notice the language, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
And God goes on to say, and if you do, I'll visit the iniquity of that sin off generation after generation after generation. This is serious. And they know this, right? This is why, by the way, this is one of the primary reasons why they're in exile for hundreds of years. The people of Israel have disobeyed this commandment and God has visited iniquity onto the generation after generation. And guess where that landed them? It landed them in this situation, okay? So they know the consequences. The judgment of God is real. They know this is a serious thing. This is high stakes, okay? This is high stakes. Life or death, bow down or be burnt alive. Crystal clear, there's no, there's no gray area. Choose God or choose Nebuchadnezzar. Now, at this point, it's really helpful for us to pause. Very likely, you and I will never face a situation quite like this. And so when we read about situations, this is a martyr story in scripture, it's very, very important to back up a little bit and say, okay, the reality is America is not like exactly like that, okay? You're not gonna show up to work Monday morning and there's a giant 90 foot tall statue. It's like, gun to your head, are you gonna bow down? Like that's just not, that's not a reality. Except for in many parts of the world, the church is still heavily persecuted. Do you realize persecution of Christianity today is worse than it was in the first few centuries? Think about Christians in North Korea, Somalia, in Yemen, in Afghanistan. You can go online and look and you can, you can pray for and you can, and so I just wanna pause and acknowledge this is not a situation that very likely anyone in this room will face and yet, we just wanna remember and pray for and stand with Christians around the world who actually do face situations like this. And for us, I think it's very, very important to remember that we're learning principles from the Babylonian exile, and we're treating Babylon as an archetype, which is how it's treated throughout the remainder of scripture, by the way. Babylon is a way of referring to the sinful world, the sinful nature of the world. So it's Totally appropriate for us to ask questions like, how do you influence Babylon? And yet the reality is we don't literally live in the Babylonian exile in a situation quite like the ones faced by these three friends. And so it's helpful for us to ask questions like this one. What would be an example of a golden image that you might be tempted to bow down to? We've defined idols before as anything that rivals or replaces your worship of the one true God. And it's very likely not gonna be a golden statue. It's not gonna be maybe even you know, a physical thing, but what would be an example of something where everyone else is doing it, okay? There's no hiding, you're in the desert. There's a giant statue, right? You're gonna see who's bowing to it and who's not bowing to it. And, it, and it, there's this insurmountable, it seems, amount of pressure. What, what is an example of those cultural idols? Again, John Tyson says this uh, in his book, Creative Minority. He says, sex, money, and power are the idolatrous, notice that language, the idolatrous trinity that defines our culture's ethical vision. So I wanna actually spend a little bit of time on this. Because the reality is those are the big three, sex, money, and power. Those are the big three. And what everyone else is doing in culture on those three is drastically different than the vision, the ethical vision, the moral vision that Jesus sets forth for us. 
And so we have to choose. Are we going to bow down to culture's message, to the narratives of the world, to what Babylon is trying to get us to do, or are we going to bow down to Jesus Christ? So let's go through each one. Culture versus, uh, culture versus Jesus. Culture on sex. This is a phrase you've probably heard before. If it feels good, if it feels good, do it. Nothing new here since the 60s, okay? This is from the sexual revolution, the 1960s, Woodstock. This is the message. It's everywhere. Again, this should be no surprise to you. It's in, every, it's in advertisement. It's in media. It's on social media. There's pressure everywhere. If it feels good, do it. And there's a twin uh, message to this now where sexuality is, is really combined with gender ideologies and all that goes along with that. If it feels true, believe it. Not just if it feels good, do it. If it feels true, believe it. And uh, kids are younger and younger when they're exposed to this kind of messaging. It's in children's, children's TV shows, it's in classrooms, it's in school counseling curriculum right now. And uh, this is very different if you were to just compare, if it feels good, do it, what's the harm? As long as it's not hurting anyone, right? The key word is, is consent in, in culture's message. That's the only time where uh, culture might draw a boundary if there's, if, there's, if there's not consent. But as long as no one's getting hurt, if it feels good, do it. Here's Jesus' message on sex from the Sermon on the Mount. This is, you, you're not gonna see a, a more strict sexual ethic than the one Jesus portrayed in uh, Matthew 5. It says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, and the sin he's talking about is the sin of lust in Matthew 5 there, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. That's not everyone's favorite memory verse, is it? <laughs> I've never seen anyone with a tattoo of that. That's, it's rough. It's countercultural. Now, I want to be very clear on this. Jesus is not saying sex is evil, sex is wrong, right? Sex is, guess who created sex? God did. It's a gift, it's a beautiful gift to be used only within a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. That's a biblical sexual ethic, by the way. It's very simple, it's very, very clear all throughout scripture, Old and New Testament. And what Jesus is speaking against, he's speaking against sexual immorality, taking it outside of that context. Obviously, it's quite a far cry from if it feels good, do it. And Jesus is saying to bow down to the cultural ethic on sex, however that looks, pornography, premarital sex, extramarital sex, adultery, uh, sleeping around, hookup culture, like whatever it looks like, any, any, any of those items is to, it, it's, it's to lead to destruction. That's what Jesus is saying. And now it's a hyperbole. He's not saying actually chop, again, he's not, don't chop off your hand, don't gouge out your eye, literally, but he's saying, what is it gonna take for you to be very serious about following my, my vision for sexuality? God created sexuality and we must follow his vision for it. That's just the first one. Let's look at money, okay? Culture on money. I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. That's a, uh, a modern philosopher, Ariana Grande, from a... <laughs> It, it's important, okay, okay, it's important. This is why you have to know, you have to be familiar with the stories of culture. How do you know what culture believes? Pop culture actually represents these storylines throughout culture, okay? 
Uh, I'm not like a huge Ariana Grande fan, but it's like, that's, isn't that exactly what it is though? With money. I mean, man, in America, I was shot like, one of the like culture shocks going to the Philippines for a couple weeks and then coming back, this was actually really difficult for me to just see the amount of opulent wealth, which by the way, perfectly describes literal Babylon, historical Babylon, as well as the Roman Empire, as well as the Babylon described in Revelation, okay? Eerily similar, America. And the amount of waste and consumerism, and we, we actually don't have a resource problem in the world to handle the world's population, that's actually a misconception. We have a redistribution problem where the few control most, and we're like 42% of what goes into your refrigerator gets thrown away. Like that's just, that happens in America. It doesn't happen in other countries. They eat literally every scrap of food that they can get because they don't have enough. And we live and die. I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. And whenever you have more money or you get a raise, the first thing is now what can I buy with that money? Not how can I give or why does God trusting me with that so I can use it? It's very, very different. Again, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus on money. This is his teaching on money, his central teaching on money. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money is the other master Jesus is referring to in that often quoted teaching. You know you can't serve two masters. The other master is money. The you see the language of slavery bowing down to a master? The gloves are off today, okay? Like this is, this is Babylon. And we're falling for it, hook, line, and sinker. Jesus' teaching on money is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And money is, is not necessarily evil, just like sex, right? In and of itself, and yet, it's either going to be a tool that you use for God's kingdom or the thing that prevents you from seeking God's kingdom first. It will either be something that you are, have mastery over or you will become a slave to it. Money is a tool to be used for God. It's, it's there for you to be able to help those in need and support uh, the kingdom of heaven coming on earth as it is in heaven. All right, that's number two. Number three is power. Here's the cultural motto on power. If you ain't first, you're last. Another pop culture reference, Will Ferrell uh, in, in his movie. Again, whenever I quote pop culture, I'm not like endorsing these like movies or anything like that, but it perfectly describes the cultural perspective on power. We want to win. And I don't know a country in the world that wants to win more than the United States of America. This is, this is, having lived in another country, I actually can, can say, like, you just don't see this, this, this idea of winning and being first at the cost of, who, you know, doesn't matter who else it hurts along the way, you wanna be the king of the hill. And, and, and whatever arena that looks like for you, whether it's in success, whether it's having the nicest house, you're, like, you're trying to one-up one another in conversations, uh, as a student, you know, as an athlete, you know, how you look in your beauty, in your image, having most followers, like you name it. We are inventing ways to demonstrate power over other people. And we're fighting and climbing over one another on uh, on the way to the top of the hill. Jesus envisions another way. Comparing 
the way of the Gentiles who lord power over one another. In Matthew 20, 26 through 28, Jesus says this, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If culture says, if you ain't first, you're last, Jesus says the first shall be last. And he reverses it, and he turns it upside down, and he says that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is actually the greatest servant, the one who sacrifices, the one who, you wanna know why God has given you influence and why God has given you power? It's to actually lift up those who are in need. It's to help others. It's to actually become that servant leader and lay down your life for the well-being of others. Those are just three. That's not an exhaustive list. Those are just three of the golden images, the idolatrous trinity of our day. What's your golden image? Where are you tempted to bow down to Babylon, to bow down to the message, to the ethics, to the morality, to the beliefs, to the worldview of our day and age? And I just wanna, I just wanna challenge you, church, today. Don't bow down. Don't bow down to those idols whatever that is, however many people in your life, literally everyone's doing it. Not everyone. Don't bow down to the gods of this age. There is only one that we can bow down to. It's Jesus Christ. And see, Jesus, he didn't use his power, like he said in Matthew 20, he didn't use his power to come and to, to exercise that authority over others. He used it not to be served, but to serve, and ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't climb to the top of the hill at the cost of other people. He died on the hill of Calvary for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying for the sins of the world on the cross. Three days later, being raised back to life. 40 days after that, ascending to the right hand of the Father where he rules and he reigns on high. And one day, Jesus Christ will return. That's the gospel. One day, Jesus Christ will return. And Paul in Philippians 2 says this, Philippians 2, 10 through 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should what? Everyone say it. Bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth so that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, everyone's gonna bow. And you can choose right now during this life to bow your knee to Jesus Christ, to confess Jesus is who he said he was. He's the Christ, the son of the living God, to put your faith in him. Or if you bow to the gods of this day and this age, one day you will bow in regret, knowing that you were wrong. And I, my job as a pastor and a preacher is not to scare anyone into becoming a Christian, but I just wanna warn you with sobriety Bow your knees to Christ. There is no other name on earth or in heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. So today, if if you're hearing this gospel and the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart, do not harden your heart. Respond, put your faith in Jesus. Confess your sins, repent, turn towards him, pray and ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life. If you've never been baptized, I wanna challenge you to confess Jesus Christ as Lord through baptism. It's the way that Jesus commanded us to respond. 
It's the way that he told us we should declare our faith. If you wanna confess your faith in Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized, I wanna challenge you, go online, go to hillcityboise.org slash baptism. There's a video on there you can watch, you can learn more, and you can sign up on there. And I would, we would love to walk alongside you as you put your faith in Jesus, maybe for the very first time. Back to the story. Daniel chapter three, picture it. Can you see it? Can you picture it? In the desert, 90 foot tall statue, impressive, brand new, brand spanking new. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're there. The music starts playing. People, like immediately, they're like, I'm not going in the furnace. People immediately, every single government official on the ground, on their face. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are just looking at each other and they have refused to bow down to this statue. Well, there are a few Babylonian officials who see this, they catch them in their insolence and they bring them before Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter three, verses uh, 14 and 15, this is what Nebuchadnezzar's response is to them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, he's gonna give him a second chance. If you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, he's like, I gave you all these musical instruments. Just in case you, you're, like, you're not, not gonna miss it. To fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. He's like, okay, forget that. Lot. Forget that. We'll give you another chance. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the fiery, the burning fiery furnace, and who is the God? I mean, who can deliver you? What hope do you have? Who is the God? Like, you see this question here? Man, you're gonna need a miracle to save you. Who is the God that could deliver you from my hands? Here's the point. When you stand firm in your faith, you stand out. This is very important in understanding how, okay, if we're not like force. Babylon to change, and we're not just gonna like blend in and try to be generally nice people. This is key. When you actually stand firm in your faith, you will stand out. You will stand out. Now, there's all sorts of rationalizations that these three friends could have used. First of all, they could have used the rationalization of safety. I mean, would God really want us to die? I mean, He's sustained us, he's protected us this far, we've been promoted, we're officials in the empire. Wouldn't, he wanna, wouldn't it be better for us to live and use our positions you know, for, for his glory? There's the rationalization of culture. So I'm, I'm just trying to fit in and be culturally relevant, okay? I'm not actually like worshiping the idol, I'm just, you know, this is just what it looks like in Babylon. There's the rationalization of forgiveness. Maybe I'll bow now and repent later. How many Christians kind of use that as an excuse to continue on in sin? Romans chapter six, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? What does Paul say? By no means. Well, I, I'll just do it now and then I'll repent later. And every time I hear the music, I'll bow down and I'll just repent later. And they don't do that. And then there's the rationalization of, well, you know, I'll, I'll bow on the outside, but on the inside, I'm not really, you know, I'm not really bowing down my heart to the idol. And we must learn to, you know, in this dilemma, you've got two options. We must learn to stop asking the question, what is the most comfortable? What is the easiest option? What is the, certainly what is the most popular option or what everyone else is doing? And here's the one question you need to start asking, what is the most faithful? 
What does faithfulness look like? Man, here's the response. The three friends, Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. This is the king. He's about to kill them. If this be so, our God, whom we will serve, is able to deliver us. Notice he's able to deliver us from the burning uh, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands. He's able to, he will, verse 18, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is true faith. They trust God, if he saves them or if he doesn't save them. Rodney Stewart's Old Testament scholar says this, biblical faith has the assurance to say, I know my God is able to deliver me. It has the confidence to say, I believe that my God will deliver me, but it also has the submission to say, but even if he does not, I will still trust in him. This is what we need. We need assurance, we need confidence, and ultimately we need submission. We need assurance. Do you believe that God is powerful enough? Who's, who's really on the throne? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, he's on like the Babylonian throne. Do you know there's another throne, the throne of the universe? And you believe that God truly is powerful. And then you have confidence. And this is how we should pray. I think we should pray with the same kind of boldness, right? These three friends, they say, he will. You ask what kind of God could? Not only our God could, he will deliver us from the fiery furnace. This is how we pray. I think this should inform how we pray. We talk to God, remember who you're talking to and pray with power and pray with boldness. And then we also need submission. We need to yield. It may not be at the end of the day that exactly what you prayed is in the will of God. And you must be able to submit, not as I will. It's the Gethsemane prayer, not as I will. Your will be done. Even if there's danger to you, even if it doesn't work out, even if you get fired from your job, even if whatever, fill in the blank. Come what may, still we will trust in the Lord our God. God will either do a miracle or he will use their death to glorify his name. And that's the faith. That the, this, is, this is our initial question. How do you influence? How do you actually influence Babylon? How do you move the needle? You wanna know one of the biggest things that moved the needle in the Roman Empire in the first three centuries of the church was martyrs dying for their faith. And the testimony of, of Christian after Christian that Roman officials would watch that they would be willing to die for their faith. And that was the thing that actually won the empire to Christ. And so Nebuchadnezzar is not satisfied with their response, needless to say. He is actually furious, and he orders that the fire be heated seven times hotter than usual. And it was already pretty hot. So he orders that it's heated, and he, he doesn't even wait for their clothes to be stripped off of them. And he commands that they would be thrown into the fire, and it's so hot that the soldiers who throw these three friends into the fire are killed from how hot it is, and they're not even in the fire. They die on the way to the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, he's like, let's see. Let's see what things look like in there. I bet they're gonna eat their words now. I bet they're gonna regret not bowing down now. And he looks in to the furnace, and there's another in the fire. How many do, how many do we put in there? Three? Yes, we, I, there's four people in there. And God does perform the miracle in this case. 
And these three friends, they're protected from the flames. It's like the burning bush where God doesn't quench the flames. He doesn't put the flames out. They're standing in the midst of the fire and, and they're not being consumed by it. And he orders that they come out, the three friends come out. They don't smell like smoke. Their hair, their eyebrows, there's no, they're not singed. Their clothes are still intact and God performs a miracle. And through this miracle, Nebuchadnezzar changes his heart, his posture towards the God of these Hebrew youths. Daniel 3, 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Here's a new decree. How about this? Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses shall be laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. You want to talk about influencing an empire. It works. It works. Do they take a sledgehammer to the statue? deface government property? Do they hold picket signs? Do they get into arguments on Facebook? Do they try to use hard power? This is peaceful non-participation. This is radical faithfulness. And here's the deal, it actually works. It actually works. When you can't change the empire, I wanna give you three things that you can change, okay? Three things that I believe if the church in North America would actually follow Jesus in these three areas, it would start working. We'd start seeing the needle move for the kingdom of heaven on earth. The first one is personal purity. Personal purity, that's where it all begins. It all actually started. If you wanna have a chance at not bowing down to a 90-foot golden statue, don't eat meat from the king's table. You've gotta know where to draw the line, as we talked about last week. It, it begins there. It might seem trivial, but you begin rationalizing, eating meat from the king's table, you don't stand a chance at these high stakes moments. It starts with personal purity. We will not serve your gods. We have to get serious about knowing the way of Jesus, knowing the teachings of Jesus. Again, you want like a handbook, Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, it's as compact as a handbook on the teachings of Jesus as you can ask for. And then read the Gospel of Matthew, then read the other three Gospels, then read the rest of the New Testament. But follow the, the ethical vision set forth by Jesus Christ himself. What does it mean to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus? You follow the teachings of Jesus. And if there's any area where you're not following, where you're disobeying, we must repent, we must turn back towards him. We have to not just be generally nice people, if you, want, if you want people to actually change, if you want people to see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, the, 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 the level of righteousness, purity, holiness that the church demonstrates, it has to be noticeable from the average American, okay? Does that make sense? And it's noticeable. When you stand firm in your faith, you will stand out. That's the first area. That's you individually, okay? Second one, family discipleship. You might not be able to change 
You know, you might not like get elected to office. You might not be able to change, you know, the, the nation, but you can disciple your family. You can, put, you can put habits and practices in your marriage. You can get serious. I think about Judges chapter six. You wanna know where Gideon has to pull down an altar? In his father's house, before God raises up Gideon to be used as a judge. He says, listen, I wanna use you, you're my guy, but your dad still has an altar to Baal. Go and tear that down, and then I'll use you. You've gotta be devoted to God if you're gonna be used by God. And we need, to, we need to go through our households, tear down some idols, get serious about discipleship, talk to your kids about Jesus, make sure they're not just being exposed to the stories of Babylon, the stories of this age. You've gotta know, they've gotta know the story of, of scripture, pray with them, talk with them, just Deuteronomy chapter six them, talk about these things. When you stand up, when you sit down, when you walk along the way, everywhere you go, in the car, at the table, we've gotta get serious. You wanna move the needle? This is how we do it. It's you in your own life following Jesus and it's our families getting serious. Here's the third area, okay? If you wanna actually influence the empire is covenant community. Covenant community. What worked in Jerusalem doesn't work necessarily in Babylon, because I mean, think about it. You go to a sledgehammer with the, you know, with the 90 foot tall statue, you just get killed. The reality is, Josiah, we looked at this in, the, in week one of this series, he did go around with a sledgehammer, didn't he? Where did he do that? He did that in Jerusalem. He did that in Judah. He went around the places. Why was he able to get away with that? Well, first of all, he's the king. Okay, he was the king of Judah. But also, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved in the metal images. He was able to do that because those are literally places for God's covenant community. This is going to come as a shock for some of you in this room. Jesus did not make a covenant sealed with his blood with the United States of America. I know I'm gonna get an email about that, okay? But just like, show me in the Bible. In, in the same way that God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, Jesus did not make a covenant with the United States. And I'm not here to say, like, I'm, I'm glad, you know, the founding fathers, there's Christian principles and all men are created equal and yet most of them were slave owners. Like, you just see this, I'm not but you have to stop treating the Constitution as like the 67th book of the Bible. What does it look like? What does faithfulness look like? We have to understand and recognize. You, you may not be able to go out in culture and tear down idols, but guess where, guess where God's covenant community is? Guess what was signed and sealed with the blood of Christ? The church is God's covenant community. And so we've gotta get serious about being a part of this community. We've gotta get serious about our corporate sanctification, about our corporate obedience, about our corporate sins. We've gotta get serious about not just going to church, but being the church. Life group promotions are going on now, like seriously. Be in one another's life. Iron sharpens iron. Pray with one another. Confess your sins to one another. Rebuke one another if you need to, but we, we, we have to be 
serious about being the covenant community of Jesus. And here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. If personally you follow Jesus at a whole different level, personal purity, you disciple your family, you follow Jesus in your marriage, the gospel is actually revealed by how a husband and wife treat one another. And if we were to truly be the covenant community of Christ, we would see people glorify our Father in heaven. What Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, beloved, I hope you hear these words in love, even if they're convicting today. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There's a war for your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's stand and worship our God. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.